Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in to another episode in our Toolkit series, where we're taking a deep dive each month into a single topic, recapping the basics, but also focusing in on frequently asked questions and judgmental areas. For the month of June, it's all about leasing. Staying focused on people, project management, and systems. I think keep those in mind on the front end. That will make sure that the transition occurs effectively throughout. Time is of the essence, though. My guests today are CJ Finn, Chad Soares, and Mark Jerusalem. They're going to continue the leasing series with a focus on some of the common implementation questions that private companies facing ASC 842 adoption this year will want to keep in mind. There's a lot to cover, so let's get started. So CJ, Mark, Chad, welcome. Nice to have three of you on the podcast today. And we're tackling a huge topic, at least for companies that are facing this, which would be the adoption of ASC 842 by non-PBEs or by other companies who have not already adopted. And uh, today we'll talk about some of the lessons learned from public companies, as well as some other implementation uh, tips and tricks. So with that, CJ, I know you've spent a lot of time out in the field talking to companies that are in the process of adopting. And um, I had you on previously talking about revenue adoption. And I know this was also a very popular podcast. So definitely interested to hear what you have to say and where you'd start. Thanks. And it's nice being back. So so if you look at the, the leasing standard compared to the revenue standard, Heather, revenue was very dense in terms of technical activities and interactions. And it it took a fair bit of technical horsepower to get through that standard. Uh, As you compare that to leasing, there's some, there's still several technical activities, uh, some of which we'll discuss today as we go through the, the discussions and interactions on the adoption of leasing, but it's not nearly the same level of technicalities that revenue had. And what we saw from the public companies is the accounting was really probably only like 20% of that overall effort. That compared to the systems, the data, and just gathering the leases and really understanding like, well, what do we have? Because some of these leases are kind of old and cold, particularly for the private companies where they haven't had to maintain and keep those those items can being in continuation. They haven't had to look back at the lease that they entered into in 2000 or in 1990 that related to some of their buildings. Well, now figuring out where those are at, what form they're in, and how do we get those? Well, that's where the complexity is. And then once you gather all that data, how do you systematize it? How do you bring it together? When we talk about systems, it may be a spreadsheet. It may be a pretty advanced spreadsheet, but it's something that is a system that needs to be thought of. And that processing considerations around the system is going to be a relevant consideration. It also is understanding what are the operational decisions Is this really going to be something you're only looking at from a lease perspective for accounting purposes? Or if you are gathering all this data, uh, public companies are realizing there's a lot of insights that they're able to gather now from this data to make operational decisions. Um, Having that decision on the front end will potentially provide the opportunity sooner rather than just having accounting drive this conclusion. Associated with the adoption, we've also now started seeing the lease versus buy conversation. 
Are we going to outsource the accounting? Are we going to outsource the system work? Or are companies going to develop this in-house? What infrastructure, what items are going to need, need what incremental upskilling of your of the teams are going to be necessary to keep it in-house versus making a decision that you're just going to outsource it to the ser- a service provider. And service providers are getting more and more advanced in terms of providing that solution. So we are starting to see a big shift in terms of that discussion. We're very early on in the public company considerations. It was all about how to, how to consider building up their own infrastructure. Overall, though, this is one where um, this is going to require significant investment from all parts of the organization. This is not, while it may be accounting-led for certain parts, uh, it's not the best practice in terms of how to get through it. And you will need help from facilities, from finance, from operations to make sure that uh, it's complete. And so that's that's some of the things that we're seeing as it relates to the, the public company comparison that have already gone through this adaption. All right. So definitely a lot to talk about there. But maybe before I go on, uh, Mark or Chad, do you want to make a preemptive strike against anyone, uh, revenue specialists who are now going to be saying, oh, we always knew revenue was more complicated than leasing? Or are you okay with uh, CJ's comment there? You know, Heather, I'd be happy to weigh in there. I don't think that lease accounting is less complex than the effort around revenue recognition. I do think that the complexity falls outside of the accounting realm because revenue is such an important cycle to all businesses. And there's lots of focus and systems that have always always existed on on that uh, particular financial statement line item. For lease accounting, it's not an exaggeration to say that Excel was the most widespread used software tool in America for lease accounting up to the adoption of 842. All right. So then I guess, um, CJ, they let your your comments stand. So I, I'm a little surprised. I thought they might be uh, objecting there. Uh, but anyway, CJ, so clearly as we go kind of go back to adoption and really think through lessons learned and actually think these are similar to revenue, but what we've found from public companies would be the kind of key things we really need would be to make sure we identify and dedicate the right people to the effort as soon as possible. And given where we are, that's probably today, not Monday. And um, we're recording this on a Friday. So, or, you know, for our listeners, it would be Tuesday, not Wednesday. Um, having a perspective early on in terms of the right solution. And that goes to this question of Excel, outside services, software. If you're going to buy software, do it early and then think carefully before really you start to customize. So CJ, does that kind of summarize from your perspective? Heather, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's, that's absolutely right in terms of the considerations. I think as you look at this and where I'll give Chad and Mark the, the discussion and the credit in terms of some of the complexities, a lot of good work was done on the front end is particularly around some of the practical expedience that leasing has to offer. And so some of that legwork to reduce some of that accounting complexity is manifesting itself in terms of really understanding and taking advantage of the p- practical expedience where applicable. That doesn't mean that the journey doesn't is, is going to be easy. There's going to be challenges that remain. We talked about the operational considerations. Where are the leases located? Is there going to be a central, is everything kind of running through a centralized process right now? Most of our companies, it's, very decentralized in terms of who has the authority to enter into leases, what geography, who maintains that data. And so that decentralized versus centralized model is is going to be at the heart of implementations, both in terms of where you get the data, 
but then also on a go forward basis, how do you want to operate um, with the new standard and have a new operating model? Uh, global considerations in terms of translation and making sure that you have the right resources in country if relevant. Some of the countries have already adopted IFRS, which has a slightly different and very tangible specific differences between US GAAP in this area. So there will be some incremental complexity there. As you get into the lease portfolios for the private companies, that's one of the assessments that, that everybody will have to make. And it just depends on what your historical pattern has been in terms of lease versus buy decisions. The going and seeing that I, I lease my truck. Well, that that's a relatively basic, straightforward consideration. As you get into the more advanced IT equipment, specialized equipment that may be at a facility, the level of building leases, that size and scale and the different facets of your business, which are subject to leases, will all potentially increase that complexity. So that's where some of the challenges may end up being. That's where you get back to Heather, what software and mm -hmm. having it being astute in, in terms of knowing your own portfolio helps you make that decision as to what software to go through um, early on in the discussion. I think you then highlighted people. There's two components associated with people. Like everybody that I talk to, it's needing to do it better, faster, stronger with less resources at their disposal. And so how do you end up dealing with that when you're now adding the incremental burden of adopting a new standard? Two components. COVID changed kind of the way people have done business. Sometimes there's leases that now have come into play that I would have never thought would have been leases in the past. And that's just to net migrate to how people are making those decisions and where people are working and the business environment adapting to that. The second is identifying what resources are at your disposal. And is, is this one where you want to occupy your resources time in terms of getting up to speed and gathering all the data? Or is this one that you're wanting to outsource to a consultant or a service provider to kind of provide you the incremental activities and support to be able to get through it faster? So CJ, I think your point there is that if your team is already, I'll also use the word overburden from everything we've been through for the past few years, is this really something you want to add to their plate or is there another way to get it done? That's absolutely right. And it and that comes with the significant effort of getting yourself current to adopt the new standard as one. And then second, maintaining the controls and the process on a going forward basis to maintain vast majority of companies are getting help to get over the hill and adopt the standard and do the get through the backlog. And then we're seeing a mixed bag, but an increasing percentage of those people deciding to uh, outsource versus keep it their own, particularly among the private companies. All right. So that's a really good lead in to, I think, a, a primer on lease accounting and definitely would encourage our private company listeners to go back to our whole library of different uh, podcasts that we've had and even the other ones we're issuing this month. But to give a little more context to this discussion, I think it'd be helpful to at least talk about the definition of a lease and maybe some key changes from 840. So Mark, why don't I turn to you um, for some of the key things that you are focused on? Uh, certainly, Heather. So as CJ discussed, you know, one of the biggest efforts in simply 
implementing a new standard is gathering all that information that may exist, especially if your if your organization is somewhat more decentralized, just finding that information and making sure that you can identify all your leases. We all know, of course, that the, the biggest change in eight from eight the biggest change in eight forty two from eight forty is the fact that most leases will be on balance sheet. And previously operating leases were not on balance sheet. And so there may be areas where there are leases that are embedded in other arrangements that need to be found at this point in time. Maybe they were not focused on previously. So I guess just at a very high level, you know, what is the definition of a lease? And the legal form of the arrangement is is typically not relevant. I mean, it would be nice if every arrangement that was a lease has the word lease in the title. But, you know, certainly many supply contracts and many service contracts may contain a lease embedded within those arrangements. So they could be, they could be standalone or they could be part of a larger arrangement. Uh, the definition of a lease under 842 really talks about the right to control property, plant, and equipment for a period of time in exchange for consideration. That's sort of the one-sentence definition, if you will, that's at the beginning of the standard. And in order for there to be a lease, there really has to exist four conditions. So those four conditions are that, and, and we're talking here, again, in those things where perhaps it's a little bit more difficult to determine whether or not you have a lease, such as you have a supply contract. So when might a supply contract have a lease? So the four conditions are that there has to be an identified asset, and that asset could be either identified explicitly or implicitly. There can't be a substantive substitution right on that asset. Um, the customer has to have the right to substantially all of the economic benefits from the asset during the term of the arrangement. And the customer has to have the right to direct the use of the asset during the term of the arrangement. And it's that last piece that is really the biggest difference between how to evaluate a lease under 842 versus under 840. Under 840, you could have a lease solely because you were the only customer. You got all the output, even if you didn't have the right to operate the asset. Under 842, and, and, and to make this standard more consistent with perhaps 606 and other new standards that, that really focus on whether the right to direct the use of an asset has been transferred from one party to another. So just like those standards, the lease standard as well focuses on does the customer have the right to direct the use of an asset, which is the area that we've seen companies spending some time on to truly evaluate, to ascertain whether there's a lease. All right. So then if I think about what you've just talked about, clearly balance sheet recognition is key here. And I want to actually come back to that later when we think about implementation issues. But I also think another key point is that you may have a contract that has both lease and non-lease components. And so that allocation is going to be increasingly important with the fact that the lease portion is on balance sheet. So Chad, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, it's a great question, Heather. And for both lessees and lessors, it's really relative standalone prices. In the case of a lessor, they're selling prices, right? So you have to come up with an estimate of what the relative value of the things in the contract are. And it's an analysis that often requires significant judgment. Now, look, we have lots of leases where it's not all that hard. For example, take a common lease, a building with lessor-provided maintenance, right? 
The only element of that contract that is subject to lease accounting is the building piece of it. The maintenance itself, the non-lease goods or services, as, as referred to in the standard, are accounted for separately unless you make certain optional elections to combine. That lease, pretty straightforward, pretty easy, right? But it can get way more complicated. And Mark gave the example of service contracts or outsourcing arrangements or what have you. You know, think about a, a, a complex supplier service arrangement. They often involve the use of assets, right? They often involve services, licenses, perhaps even raw materials and so on. And if you draw, if you conclude that within that contract is a lease, you're no longer accounting for it just as a simple executory contract. Instead, the customer is leasing the equipment, hiring the labor and procuring materials and so on and so forth. So when you start to think about splitting that contract up, you're going to have to think about, in the case of a lessee, standalone price. But it's not the standalone price of purchasing the output. It's rather the standalone price of thinking about renting that equipment, paying those employees. And that model is very different, right? The standalone price for using a building isn't the fair value of the building. It's the fair value of using that building for a period of time that you get to look at. And one of the things that caused lots of complexity when we we're dealing with public companies adopting was the contracts that we're talking about, the complex supply arrangements, service contracts, et cetera, they're often bespoke. They're often subject to very extensive contracts and negotiations. The pricing can vary. They can have variable and fixed pricing in them and so on and so forth. And they're often significant. They often involve significant monetary amounts. So they're important to get right. And it's, it's not a cookie cutter analysis. You have to spend some time in each of the contracts and really understand the economics and what you're getting. Once you determine that split, then the payments that are allocated to the lease are factored into the measurement of the right-of-use asset and lease liability for the lessee. Now, the good news is we only have to think about fixed payments that are allocated to lease liability, right? So variable payments are generally, the variable payments are not generally included in the measurement um, other than things like CPI indexation where you include the day one amount that you've got to pay. You use those fixed payments to determine the lease liability, and then from that, you derive the right-of-use asset. It starts at the value of the lease liability and then could be adjusted for things like prepaid rent, initial direct costs, et cetera. So it may not always be identical. Your lease accounting thereafter then depends upon whether you classify the lease as an operating lease or as a finance lease, and that'll impact how it's recognized in the P&L. Yeah, so I think one of the key things that is, is always a little bit of a paradigm shift to think about is that when you have, when you conclude that, okay, I have something in form that's a supply contract, but now I, I recognize that that contains an embedded lease. And of course, we have to allocate between the lease component and the non-lease component. Just understanding that the way you describe that non-lease component is now a little bit different. You might have thought, for example, I was buying brake pads, right? But now you realize that, no, I have a lease of a piece of equipment well, then the rest of my payment is not buying brake pads anymore, right? Instead, it's hiring a labor force who are going to operate the machine that I've rented, right? And perhaps they're going to procure my raw materials. My point is, it's going to change the nature of what it is you're doing from simply buying a product versus procuring services. And the reason I bring this up is because when you think about fair values, right, and get the relative standalone selling price, you have to think, okay, what is the relative standalone selling price of my renting this piece of equipment for X number of years? And what is the standalone selling price of hiring these employees to, to perform these services, as opposed to 
what is the standalone selling price of a brake pad and a machine? I think that's a key point, Mark, and definitely not one that is, you know, obvious on the surface. So I'm glad you chimed in with that. And I I do think as I was listening to Chad talk too, I was thinking that we're summarizing about five podcasts in five minutes. So as I'm going to go back to my earlier reminder that, you know, uh, private companies who are adopting, we do have a lot of other resources and we'll make sure those are in the show notes. But I think the other key point, Mark, from what you just said is that many of the issues that will come up in transition are going to relate to embedded leases in other contracts. We also have to deal with all of our other transition issues. So Chad, why don't we start then uh, with just how you transition? I know there's two different options companies think about. So, you know, what do we, what do we, what are those options and how, uh, how, what did we see in practice? Actually, I'd be curious um, from the public companies. Yeah, Heather. And there are two options to transition. The first is you adjust comparative periods and you effectively apply ASC 842 at the beginning of the earliest period presented in your financial statements. Um, Candidly, most people elected the second option, which was not to adjust comparative periods. And what they did was they applied it at the beginning of the current period. So if I'm a calendar year private company and I adopt the election not to adjust comparative periods, I would adopt a 1122 in my annual reporting rather than going back to 1121 and reflecting it from that date. Most most public companies elected that approach. Now, and I, and I trend- say, yeah, sorry, Heather, I'd, I'd jump in. Like, I'd say for substantially all private companies that we've dealt with have also adopted it um, in the only in the current year without going back retrospectively. Yes, definitely makes sense. I think it's always helpful as CJ for companies to know what other companies are doing. So thanks for chiming in there. So Chad, let's come back to the actual details of adoption. But then I wanted to make sure we bring into the discussion some of the practical expedients. So what are the key ones that you look at? Yeah, the key practical expedients that we adopt, the one that I focus on right out of the gate is what we refer to as the package of three, right? It is a package of expedients that must be adopted all or nothing uh, in terms of the expedient. The expedient allows entities not to reassess whether any expired or existing contracts are or contain leases, right? So my scope. The second is you need not reassess lease classification. If I have an operating lease before, it comes over as an operating lease in transition. And finally, I need not reassess initial direct costs and whether they're capitalizable under ASC 842. That expedient, I know of one instance where a company did not elect the package of three, but that was overwhelmingly elected when we dealt with public companies. And I would expect much the same for private companies. And CJ, you're nodding. Has that been your experience so far? It has, without, yeah. without a doubt. Yes, makes total sense. Okay, so Chad, let's go on then with a presumption that we did elect that package. Then how, what are some of the key things we think about with the transition, the actual accounting? In terms of the accounting, I think just the mechanism of how I bring things over. And let's start with finance leases because it's a little bit easier. If I have a finance lease under ASC 840, referred to as a capital lease, but finance lease under 842, I'm simply going to carry those balances over in my transition. Pretty straightforward. Now, granted, most leases were operating, so it's a small population in many respects. In terms of operating leases, I'm going to effectively calculate my lease liability and my right of use asset at the transition date. My classification comes over if I've elected the package of three, but I still have to measure the right of use asset and the lease liability. 
and I'm going to need some key inputs, things like the discount rate that I'm going to use to discount the payments. Most lessees won't know the implicit rate, so they're going to use the incremental borrowing rate, right? Or in the case of a private company, they may elect to use the risk-free rate, which is an option by asset class for private companies. Now, when I think about that rate that I'm going to use to discount the payments, in transition, it doesn't affect classification, but it does affect the number that goes on my balance sheet, so it's important. And that incremental borrowing rate is going to really be thinking about the credit standing of the lessee as of the date of adoption of ASC 842. So in my calendar year private company adopting prospectively the rate as of 1-1-22. That rate's going to be impacted by the creditworthiness of the lessee, the term of the arrangement, guarantees, collateral, jurisdiction, and so on. And that, more than a number of other aspects of the lease standard, that was something that there was a lot of judgment, there were a lot of discussions, and companies would do well to get ahead of that discussion a little bit, particularly if you're a company that has lots of subsidiaries operating globally, different parts of the world, you can't just assume one rate is going to is going to be applicable for every lease you do on a global organization. And Chad, and, and I think from a private company perspective, we do see a lot of questions just practically of, you know, does it make sense to use the risk-free rate from an expedient perspective or to use the um, incremental borrowing rate? But then once you get into the next consideration, it's you talked about subs all over the all over the world. Um, given the legal entity structures of many private companies, sometimes there's a parent sitting on top of it, but we're issuing financial statements at the subsidiary level. Should we be able to use one rate across that entire organization? Or if I have separate strips where standalone financial statements, how do you think about using a parent company rate, or do you have to use a rate that's explicit to that subsidiary? And, and there are a number of questions we get associated with that. Yeah, let, let me talk about that one for a bit, because we did get a number of questions when the public companies adopted as to whether they can sort of adopt one parent rate to apply to the leases of all their subsidiaries, or if they had to actually look at the subsidiaries, you know, borrowing power, if you will, and get the incremental borrowing rate of that legal entity that is the lessee. And the standard does address this. We have provided some or developed some more guidance over time, but it's going to be depending on the facts and circumstances. And so we understand why companies would want to use a parent rate. It's perhaps easier to apply like a one-size-fits-all answer to everybody. But the reality is, is that the lease should be measured using the incremental borrowing rate of the lessee. And if the lessee is a standalone subsidiary, then no, the, the starting point is it ought to be their incremental borrowing rate. Now, we've seen circumstances where it makes more sense to use the parent's rate than the subsidiary's rate. And it's not so much a policy choice as whether just based on facts and circumstances, um, do we believe, based on how the transaction was executed, that the lessor was relying on the parent's credit instead of the legal lessee's credit in determining whether to extend credit to that organization, okay? And there's probably some diversity in practice here because the specifics are not directly in the standard. Um, we, we believe that a subsidiary can use the parent's rate, again, like I said, when it seems somewhat clear that the lessor relied on that parent's credit rather than the subsidiary's credit. And we would look to indicators that would, you know, kind of show us one way or the other. So, for example, obviously, if the if the subsidiary's lease has an explicit guarantee in it from the parent, 
I would probably use the parents incremental borrowing rate. Um, another situation where we've seen companies use the parents rather than the subs incremental borrowing rate is a situation where the treasury function of the subsidiary is managed centrally with the parent and there's cash pooling or regular cash sweeps to manage the liquidity centrally. In those situations, if you think about it, if you were a bank lending money to a borrower and you know that every night the borrower's cash was swept up to the parent, you would be aware of that, right? You would know that that subsidiary doesn't have any cash on hand. So you probably relied on the parent's credit more than the subsidiary's credit. You know, On the other hand, uh, sometimes companies have said to us, well, when we entered into that lease in Germany, as an example, the lessor asked for a copy of the parent's financial statements. Okay. I think that's a pretty weak indicator. I would not rely on that to say, oh, they're relying on the parent's credit. It's just not enough. Um, certainly, uh, another thing that we've heard is, well, that German subsidiary, as an example, has the parent's name in it. It's, it's the famous ABC company. That's certainly not enough, right? So again, we're thinking about what kind of, you know, what would a lender be looking at in extending credit to this entity? And if it's obvious that it was the parent's rate, then we'd use their incremental borrowing rate rather than the subsidiaries. All right. So that's very helpful perspective, Mark, and hopefully CJ, that address many of the questions you guys are getting. But let me chime in with one of my own, because I know that last summer, the FASB actually issued an update that made it easier for private companies to actually just use the risk-free rate. And you can elect that rate by asset class instead of entity-wide. So what was the rationale behind making that change? Right. So that was something that the um, the FASB actually put in their post-implementation review. They were responding to comments. So initially, Heather, as you just said, initially when the standard came out, um, non-public companies can use a risk-free rate, which is certainly easier to use, right? You can literally look it up in the newspaper rather than, you know, developing a process. Um, but, however, the, the requirement was that if you chose that, you had to use that for all your leases. And many of the private companies said, you know, that's just not flexible enough for us, right? So first of all, that rate is usually, uh, the risk-free rate is certainly lower than a typical incremental borrowing rate. And a lower rate is going to, you know, when you start measuring lease payments, it's going to result in a higher liability on the books. So that's one negative. And the other thing is that um, private companies often enter into finance leases, right? They offer, they enter into leases where at the end of the lease, there's a $1 buyout, for example. So they really do know the, the, the rate implicit in the lease. And they were they, they, as the standard was written, it was not clear if they can use the risk-free rate and still use the rate implicit in the lease in those situations when they know it, because it literally said you had to apply it to all your leases. So the FASB clarified those two things. They issued an update that said, one, you don't have to use it entity-wide. You could use it by asset class, which is, for a lot of companies, great, because they can decide maybe on their larger real estate leases, they're going to actually get the incremental borrowing rate, but on their smaller leases, they're just going to get a rate implicit, excuse me, the risk-free rate. And then they also clarified that if you know the rate implicit in the lease, which again is possible in finance leases, you know that, that of course you should use that and not the risk-free rate or the rate implicit in the lease. So what that did obviously was offer much more flexibility to private companies in being able to adopt this. And, and we had heard feedback that private companies had not planned to adopt that, you know, to elect that risk-free rate election because of the inflexibility and now that they are planning to use that. Yeah, Mark, I agree with you associated with that. We do see more and more private companies because of the um, amendments 
and the clarification coming through and now adopting that. I, there is a cautionary tale associated with that, though, which is just acknowledge where are you at. This is something that is specific to private companies. If you're on a path and time horizon of going public, really needing to revisit and recognize that you're going to have to unwind some of those considerations if you are on that path of going public. And so really paying attention to that going public timeline, that process and that consideration, you may want to avoid some of the private company only elections at that point in time. Good advice there. So, Chad, maybe going back to you then, because I think you started this whole conversation. Uh, what else, if I'm a private company, should I be looking for um, specific to transition, but maybe more broadly? Yeah, sure, Heather. I, I think right now, just again, you know, we're two years plus into, into sort of managing COVID. Uh, top of the list for me is lease modifications and terminations. There's been really dramatic commercial change. And lots of companies had to accommodate some or all of the following. You think about the ability to work from home and the tech to support that. Revamped office space to allow for working safely together. Shedding excess office space, terminating, subleasing, and what have you. In many cases, acquiring additional office space to meet business demands, writing off impaired assets, and so on. What's going to be confusing is many private companies will have had all of this occur just before transition, Right. How does that affect my transition? When do I look at the lease? What's the lease I'm looking at in terms of bringing it in under ASC 842? So, you know, let's assume that I have an operating lease that ceases use. I have a lessee that ceases use of a building and it books a provision under the 840 rules. You have to book a provision when you cease use a particular, uh, a particular asset. The liability is going to be recognized based on future payments. Well, when I transition, there's no liability anymore. That's sort of an impairment question. So getting rid of that liability against the right of use asset and thinking about how I adjust my straight line for that and so on and so forth. You know, I've got to think about how I do ongoing income recognition. For example, in the example I just gave you, if I have a provision under 420 that I transition into ASC 842, I treat that as if that asset was impaired and I de-link the amortization of the right of use asset with the interest expense on the liability. So I have a presentation difference when I've had something for which I booked an accrual, um, I have to sort of follow the impairment guidance under 842 on that. You know, it's picking up some of those nuances because I'll set it up under 840 and then I have to make sure I set it up properly under 842 going forward. Hey, Chad, before you go on, just um, because our listeners may not have at their fingertips their um, codification, when we talk about AAC 420, what are you referring to? Oh, forgive me. That's provisions, liabilities. Think about the guidance on onerous contracts and things like that. All right. Good reminder. So keep going. I know you have some more points. I just wanted to make sure people could, could keep up with the discussion. Yeah, I appreciate that, Heather. And I sometimes get stuck in jargon. So my apologies there. Um, I would also say we did have some instances where because of accrual of executory costs, you know, things other than just the lease itself, where we had cases where the liability might exceed the value of the recognized right of use asset, right? And there's some real judgment about how to think about those previous provisions and properly reflect them on adoption. Too long a list for us to answer here, but just bear in mind, there will be things that pop up as you're trying to deal with transition. And the nice thing is we have three years of real experience with public companies. So we've got answers for a lot of those questions in our guidance. 
Yeah. And um, Chad, to your point on jargon, I'm, you know, when, if you think back to when the codification came out for those of us who are old enough, uh, remember we said we'd never use those numbers and here we go, just using them off the top of our head, just like the old FASB statements. So, That's right. Um, but anyway, CJ, I want to go back to you because I know that you are also in practice, you know, dealing with a lot of companies. What are some of the other issues that you're seeing where there's maybe a legacy accounting issue that's different now that companies are grappling with? Yeah. And I'll, I'll summarize quickly, like there are a couple areas and they were kind of the bane of, of my existence under 840. Cause it was, it always, it always seemed like we were very forms and rules driven. And it was always, it always seemed like we were given answers that clients uh, had a hard time explaining to their boards and their executives. And, and I won't go into details associated with them, but they're on the, be on the watch out for them. If you found yourself in build to suit guidance previously, there's still build and suit criteria. Eight, ASC 842, the new leasing standard, does require an evaluation, but it's not as forms driven. And you can get to more answers that at least maybe I've been sensitized to it a little bit too much, but you can get to answers that make more, more sense in terms of the discussion without tripping one of 30 different criteria. So I think that's that's one in terms of the build to suit. The other one is in terms of the failed sale leaseback transactions. The sale leaseback activities and interactions um, have a new evaluation and consideration in terms of criteria and interactions. And so paying attention to those, particularly during trans transition, be something on the lookout for. Um, the those, those oddly, I see a lot of private companies have those. Sometimes they're not always aware that they had those historically, but a lot of private companies had those because they kind of stepped into them, whereas the public companies spent the time and kind of engineered their way around them under old guidance. So those would be a couple that I would just pay attention to. All right. That's very helpful. And definitely that's going to be a major shift uh, potentially for some lessors. CJ, let me ask you another question. Actually, rewinding all the way back to the beginning when Mark mentioned the fact that these leases are now coming on balance sheet. And as soon as I think about assets coming on the balance sheet, the first thing that comes to mind for me is debt covenants. So are you seeing much in the way of where companies have had to adjust debt covenants or any other of those sort of maybe more subtle impacts that companies should be thinking about? Yeah, there's, there's probably, there's one or two. You've, had, you've identified debt covenants. Um, sometimes you also see it in the, the compensation arrangements in terms of considerations and how those are otherwise structured and what metrics are being followed. Um, things are coming on balance sheet. Uh, and, and also there's a, a pattern of recognition uh, that may change in terms of expense class, expense activities. Those will then naturally drive anything where there's contractual or some level of compensation arrangements that, that, that impact those. Uh, on the compensation front, being on the forefront, thinking about them, those tend to be within the company's control and they can perform the modifications and get those right. On the debt, it's it's intriguing. Um, when the standard first came out, there were some uh, credit creditors that asked, "Well, we'll just freeze the standard, and so for purposes of covenant compliance, just always apply old lease guidance and don't ever worry about the transition." 
Well, I, if you have those, you may really want to think hard, long and hard about that determination because now you're almost creating two sets of books mm-hmm. that you now constantly have to maintain and you've just at least doubled the complexity that you're now dealing with. And we talked about the build to suit and the sale lease back and some of the benefits and the practical expedience of the new standard. Well, you're still kind of stuck having to deal with the complexity of the old standard and you can't really make heads or tails and you don't know what what truth are you then telling what's constituency. So that would be something to just pay attention to in terms of those the covenant compliance as you go through those. Um, so, and then I, I think the other component when you get to those, we talked early on around it takes the whole organization to really get focused to help in the transition. That also means that it's incumbent upon the accountants in an organization to provide the training, the lookout, and the explain the, well, why are we here to the rest of the organization so that there is some level of appreciation. They then can act as help the accountants identify, well, what contracts may this then end up having an implication for versus what contracts are they going to be okay with? All right. Very good reminder there. So gentlemen, as always, I think it's very helpful insight. Before we wrap things up though, I know um, CJ, you're helping companies right now. Mark, Chad, I know you helped you know, have helped a lot of companies work through transition. And so just if you could give a bit of advice, what's sort of the number one recommendation you would make for companies adopting? And why don't we go Chad, then Mark, then CJ. So Chad, if you want to start. Start now. Truly, most companies that I dealt with, the sooner they started, the more comfortable they felt coming up to when they actually had to report. Good advice. Mark, how about from your perspective? Well, I guess one of the pieces of advice I would give to private companies is to at least acknowledge and recognize the fact that this, as CJ pointed out before, the standard really is a little bit gentler and kinder than the previous standards were. So don't be pessimistic about the the (laughs) process. Uh, Yes, there is information gathering. I think there is a bright side to this, and CJ mentioned it at the beginning of, of our podcast here, is that Oftentimes, people now realize just how many leases they have, just what kind of assets they're leasing. And, you know, it's not like revenue. Everyone concentrates on what they do for a living, how they make money. Nobody's a professional lessee, right? So as as lessees really focus on where are all my leases, what am I doing, there actually is room for taking a look at this and, and improving perhaps on your efficiencies and whatnot. So... Don't be pessimistic. There is a good outcome from this. That is great advice, Mark. And how about uh, CJ from your perspective? Staying focused on people, project management, and systems. I think keep those in mind on the front end. That will make sure that the transition occurs effectively throughout. Time is of the essence, though, as Chad has pointed out. All right. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, as I said, thank you so much for the insight. I do have one more question before we go. Um, Are my... I think, CJ, this is a new uh, phenomena since you did your last podcast, which is at the end, I get an opportunity to stump you on the topic that we're talking about, sort of peripherally related <laughs> to the topic we're talking about. So I have one question for you today, and I'm, I'm hoping among the three of you, you guys can get this one right. What is the longest known lease in history? I see smiles. Any guesses? I think Mark knows the answer. I know the answer. Yeah, so I, I don't I, know I the answer. In. You could definitely yeah. jump in unless CJ wants to, to weigh in. 
I, I was going to go with British royalty, but I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to pause here and let Mark answer. <laughs> well, you are close. You are close. You are close. It is Guinness beer. And oh, I think, really? I, I, I'm I now very factory. disappointed. I didn't know this. Yeah, I, I believe that lease goes back to the 18th century. Yes, and it's nine thousand years. Interesting. The, the lease agreement on their brewery in Dublin. So, for all you beer drinkers out there. Next time you have a Guinness, you can appreciate that is the longest lease agreement, at least that we are aware of. So fun fact for the day. And again, thanks, you guys so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. That's our show for today. Join me this Thursday when we'll have more ESG reporting content for you with a focus on implementation considerations related to the SEC's climate disclosure proposal. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all of the latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.